0: Yeah, so it's page 924. That's page 924, chapter 9 of Amos, starting at verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake, bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with a sword. Not one will get away. No one will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, There I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did not didn't I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Arameans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear bear my name, declares the Lord. Who will do these things? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman, and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God.
1: Do keep Amos 9 open, please. Let me read you some headlines from this week. Hostages finally released as fragile truce holds. Childcare costs could force us to sell our home. Net migrations at the highest ever level as refugees flood England. The richest 1% account for more carbon emissions than the poorest 66% report says. When Jesus entered the world... It was a place full of violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression and families being ripped apart by war. It sounds a lot like it is today. Merry Christmas. This world is a dark place. When you read those headlines, do you disengage? Do you fume with... Anger or just kind of throw your hands up in the air in exasperation. It can all feel a little bit hopeless, can't it? That's the world. But but think more personally, as you come into Christmas, as you think about the weeks to come, are you full of hope? Do you read the word hope and are you full of hope or are you feeling pretty full of despair? Because Christmas can be a time of great joy. But for many here, I know it can also be a difficult time. Maybe it's a time of year which reminds you of a family no longer united. Of loved ones no longer with you. Maybe how you had health last year and it looks like illness this year. It can be a time which reminds you of another year that has passed by without you getting the desires of your heart in certain ways. So what do we do about it? How can we find hope in the midst of darkness. Where can we place our hope? Because where we place our hope dictates the kind of lives we will live. If we place our hope in nothing, well, we'll live hopeless, joyless lives. If we place our hope in ourselves, well, we'll live sort of fluctuating, unsteady lives. Our hope changes depending on our own performance, depending on our mood or our feelings. So we need to place our hope in something secure and stable outside of ourselves. That's the only place where we'll find hope. We need hope to break into our world. But first, and you've seen it before we get there, we need to recognise our hopelessness. We need to feel hopeless in order to have hope. Israel needed to do this. Here we are, the book of Amos. It's about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And life was going really well for Israel. I'd encourage you to read it. It takes you maybe 20 minutes to read Amos. Life was going well. Their greatest enemies, Assyria and Egypt, were in times of economic, military weakness. Um, And so wealth was flowing into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. All seemed well and prosperous. They were full of hope. That is until Amos. Amos was a fig farming shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah. And he headed to Israel. He headed to the, the canvas centre of Israel of his time, Bethel, the high place of Israel. And he spoke these prophecies of judgment on them. The people of Israel thought their wealth meant God was pleased with them. He was anything but They'd won new territory, they'd plundered enemies, they'd gained wealth, but they'd allowed idolatry and injustice to seep in. Wealth had been amassed at the expense of the poor and the result was judgment. Verses 1 to 10 of Amos give you a flavour of all that has gone before in Amos. It's nine and a half chapters of judgment. And then we have these five verses we'll look at at the end. But verse eight, if you look down at me, chapter nine, verse eight is a bit of a climax. It says, surely the eyes of a sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Within 40 years, Amos's prophecy of destruction and judgment would come to pass. Israel as a nation would be destroyed for a time, but what were they doing? Why were they worthy of this judgment? Why did God send Amos from this, this little shepherd from the town of Judah, from the country of Judah, up to Israel? Well, flick back with me if you've got your Bibles to Amos 8. Uh, we could go to loads of places in Amos, it builds and it builds, and there's lots of things it says. But let me just go back one chapter to Amos 8 in page 923. And 8, verse 4 is a good summary of what is happening. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. He's talked about that in many ways in the previous chapters. How Israel had become wealthy. It's taken over the trade routes of Assyria and Egypt. It gained loads of wealth, but all of it was amassed in kind of the professional classes, in the traders, in the wealthy. And it led to great disparity, gross injustice as the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. I was reading a report earlier from Oxfam. It's noted that the world's small elite of 2,755 billionaires saw its fortunes grow more during COVID than they have in the whole last 14 years combined, the whole last time records have been held on this. It's been enabled by skyrocketing stock market prices, a boom in unregulated entities, a surge in monopoly power and privatisation, alongside the erosion of individual corporate tax rates and workers' rights, and wages. It was similar then, the rich abusing the poor. And this was in direct opposition to God's laws and God's purposes. God hates injustice and he built it into the DNA of the nation. When God gave the law to Moses, he put in provisions to stop injustice. Uh, we don't have time to look at them properly, but there was a Sabbath year. Every seven years, all the debts of the previous six years were cancelled out. Sounds great, doesn't it? There was a jubilee year. There were gleaning laws which allowed the poor to take food for free from the land of the wealthy. These are the sort of laws God embedded in society for his people to stop there being this enormous division between the rich and the poor. And here in Amos' time, the people of Israel were flagrantly ignoring these laws of God. This is total injustice. You see, God doesn't see poverty as a sort of issue for charity. He sees it as an injustice issue. The fact there are people struggling to put food on their tables this Christmas, who are working three, four, five jobs, is a justice issue. At Christmas, we talk a lot about peace, we put our tree up yesterday controversially, uh, but on the tree, it's, it's peace, joy, hope, love. We've got the word peace. We, we talk about it a lot of Christmas. And, and the Hebrew word for this is shalom. It's used throughout the Old Testament. But shalom doesn't mean, as we often think it does, or I thought it does until I looked into it, uh, just an end to hostility. Shalom doesn't mean an end to hostility. It, it's, the better definition of shalom is the presence of justice. And God throughout the Old Testament he causes people to be those of Shalom and righteousness. The righteous person in the Old Testament was the one who saw their resources, who saw their wealth as belonging to the whole community, and who enacted justice. I think this is something our our highly individualized Western culture has lost we 're so personally focused on our own peace, on our own satisfaction, on our own safety, our own health and well-being. That sometimes that's to the detriment of those around us. We don't think about them. We saw a few weeks ago in Romans how our how our jobs, how our lives are to be lived in the love and service of the other, the love of the neighbour. That whatever talents we have, whatever job and vocation God has given us, whatever wealth God has given us, there's a question: How are we using it to love? The other. How are we using it to benefit the community around us? Or are we just using it to benefit ourselves? Are we just working hard to increase our status and our standing? To provide for our family only? Or also to allow ourselves to be a blessing more widely to the community around us? This is what was going on here. This is what continued to go on here in our world. Israel was turned in on themselves in selfishness. And it led to gross injustice. But what's interesting and what's challenging is from the outside looking in, it wasn't that obvious. From the outside looking in, they looked like good followers of God. Read down me in verse uh, chapter eight again. I'll put it on the screen, chapter eight. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never fear anything they have done. The people of Israel were outwardly, Doing all God's people should do. We see that here when it talks about remembering the Sabbath and the festivals. We see it earlier in Amos as well. But inwardly, they were distracted in worship. They were focused on their profit making. They were looking in. They looked like they attended church. They prayed. They tithed, we see. But they weren't really worshipping God. This Christmas, it could be really easy to be distracted by all the trappings of Christmas. All that goes on with it. And miss out on the true and proper worship of our King. In Amos 5, God says this. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. He's not saying that about every religious festival and every assembly, praise the Lord. But he's saying that these ones where they are, they're doing one thing, but they're living a completely different way outwardly it looks like they're following God but inwardly they really are not and there's a danger that particularly in our society the way Christmas has just become this thing without Jesus there's a danger he could say the same for us if we're not careful I despise your Christmas celebrations you sing carols you put up decorations you talk about Christmas you give presents you put on your Christmas jumpers and yet all of this is just noise You're worshipping the festival, not the God whom the festival is all about. Why would God ever say this? Well, he'd say that if the traditions of Christmas were just that, they're just traditions for us. We're just going through the motions, not ones though which help us worship and delight in God and worship in this season. This isn't just something in Amos when he talks about this sort of false worship, the way that our actions Um, don't reflect what we say we actually believe. Matthew 25, Jesus says that on judgment day, everyone is going to come forward waiting for a verdict. Do you know what Jesus is going to say? Well, he says to one group, he says, I was hungry and thirsty and you fed me. I was homeless or an immigrant and you gave me a place to stay. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you gave me medicine. So come into the kingdom, friend. I mean, he's going to turn to the others and he's going to say, I was hungry and thirsty, but you didn't feed me. I was homeless and an immigrant and you didn't give me a place to stay. Okay, and then they're going to say to the Lord Jesus, when did we see you in this condition, Lord? And Jesus says that he will say when you fail to do it to these When you fail to do it to your neighbor, when you fail to do it to the homeless and the immigrant, to the hungry and the thirsty, to the sick and the prisoner around you, you failed to do it to me. Let me be clear what he's saying and what he's not. He's not saying that the way you have a relationship with God, the way you have a relationship with him is to do all these things. He's saying the way you can tell you have a relationship with me. The way you can tell you have a true love relationship with heart and faith and a real experience of my grace is that you see people out there who are struggling and are suffering and are hungry and are poor and your heart goes out to them and you must pour yourself out to them. And so you do. And the harsh word, the challenging word I think for us is he's saying if you don't care, if you're not involved then you can say you think you're a sinner saved by grace. You say you think you're in a relationship with God, but you don't. Our actions betray what's going on in our hearts. It's a challenge. Amos has been a brutal challenge for me reading this the last few weeks. It's a challenge for us as a church. This sign of faith, this outward love and care for others is unnerving. But recognition here of injustice is unnerving because we saw it here in Amos 9. We've seen it throughout Amos, if you read it through, injustice must be punished. A just God cannot ignore evil and cannot ignore injustice. It's hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard because... When we look in our lives, and I've looked in my life this week, we know we're not living consistently here. I don't love my neighbour as I should. I don't love God with all my heart, as Jesus summed up the law. And so when God says in Amos 9, verses 9 and 10, All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. He's saying that to us. We can count ourselves among the sinners. And we feel hopeless. I'm aware in the last 10 to 15 minutes, I will have made you feel pretty hopeless. And that's been deliberate. Because this is why we need Christmas. We need light to shine bright. We need to feel our hopelessness before we can feel the weight of hope this Christmas. So let's look at these wonderful verses. Right at the end, 99.9% of Amos is this laying over of judgment, this declaration of what Israel has done, the injustices they've had. And then we get this tiny glimpse of hope. And it would have come like a balm to the Israelites listening. Because imagine you're an Israelite who's been listening to Amos. You've been waiting for the promised king for hundreds of years. You've now just listened to hours, maybe even years. It's hard to tell exactly when this was compiled. Of Amos delivering judgment to you, you would have felt it audacious to hope that God might bring any good out of this. Because God, through Amos, he's told them he hates them. He hates their false faith. He hates their evil ways. He's going to destroy them, let many of them die, and he's going to send the rest into exile. So how on earth can they hope anything is going to turn out all right? Only because of the amazing transition from verses 10 to 11. What can we hope in? There's four things. We can hope in a king. A king who reigns. In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And we will build it as it used to be. After all the death and destruction of exile, God promises he will restore David's fallen shelter. In 2 Samuel, God promises an everlasting kingdom will come from the family line of David. It's why they expected the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, this, the city of David. And yet here in Amos, the promise seemed to have fallen apart. The promise of his king and the line of David had fallen apart, all was hopeless. Ten of the tribes of Israel had refused to recognise the authority of David's rule in 900 BC. They formed the kingdom of Israel to whom Amos was preaching. And after about 100 years after Amos, the final king in the line of David, a guy called Zedekiah, was removed from his throne in Judah and taken into captivity. David's house, his reign, was now just a tent, a broken shelter, a temporary structure. And yet here God promises, I will restore David's uh, fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls. I will restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be. God promised a king in the line of David. He promised to restore his house and he did it through Jesus. In Luke 1, famous verses, the angel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His <coughs> kingdom will never end. It's the first promise. The king is going to be restored. And the promise then continues in Amos of a hope for all people. He says, I will restore David's fallen shelter so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. Who will do these things. Now if you're an Israelite listening to this, you would have been shocked. Edom was Israel's enemy, their neighbour and their enemy. And here amazingly Amos is saying that they will be brought into the kingdom. And this new kingdom would include all the nations called by his names. If you've been around for the last year in Romans we've seen this both Jew and Gentile, all nations will worship the Lord. Anyone who trusts in the Lord can become part of his family. It's not just a specific race or a specific nation. When we think about injustice, I've looked at passages where it's been preached around racial divisions. They will be healed, they'll be removed. The gospel is not just for a certain people. No one is able to come to God and trust him. Everyone is able to come to God and trust him, sorry. In Acts 15, we see Jesus' brother James quote Amos 9. He speaks about how Jesus came to reach for Gentiles with the gospel as well as the Jews. The followers of Jesus, the disciples in Acts, saw that Amos 9 was all about Jesus. Jesus, who came into the world as a victim of injustice. Oppressed, poor. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Poor man born in a feeding trough. Trampled, betrayed. Betrayed part of a sham trial, unfairly executed. God so loved the world, but he became part of it. He died on the cross unjustly receiving a judgment he did not deserve so that we can receive justice and not be destroyed by it. This is why a heart of justice is a sign that we're saved by grace, Because it comes as we worship Jesus. It comes as we understand our hopelessness. We understand that we're sinners, that we're only saved by Jesus. Jesus who ploughs all his riches into us and became so poor so we could become rich. Jesus hated injustice and suffering and evil and death so much that he came to deal with it. And he experienced it. So we cannot be passive about hunger and sickness and injustice around us. We need to wake up and fight the things that Jesus was born into the world at Christmas to defeat. I'm not sure, and I'm resting with this week, I'm not sure exactly what this looks like for us as a church here. But we need to be people who start somewhere. Throughout all of history, Christians have been driven by this hope to change the world. History shows Uh, This on the big scales, like the end of slavery, the work of Martin Luther King. Many ways you see time and time again, Christians have stood up for injustice and fought and railed against it. Big ways, but also in small little ways and decisions we can make here locally. We've started here somewhere today. If you use the money God has given you to give others in need with the food bank presence and the food that is needed. It's a small start. We can start there and then commit to thinking and praying and dreaming about what it would look like for us as a church to offer spiritual hope fundamentally to Vista, showing them the hope that only comes through Jesus, but also by fighting against injustice, hitting back against it through our generosity, out loving the town around us. This promise is for all people from every nation, They can all be saved, both the rich and the poor. And then it continues and it continues to get more and more glorious. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I'm not a farmer, but I read about it. Normally you plow the ground in October. You sowed your seeds in December, you harvested in March and then you made the wine in June. But here God is saying, imagine a world where when it comes to play in October, you can't because the reapers aren't done harvesting because there were just way too many grapes. You're going to go, hang on, there's no place that fertile on earth. There's no land like that. There's no place where land is so abundant. If it was a land like this, there'd be no more hunger. There'd be so much wealth. There'd be so much abundance. There'd be no one without. In Genesis 3, we see the physical curse God gives the land on account of sin. He says, because you ate the tree that I commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat all the days of your life. Farming is hard work. Our work is hard work. It's a result of the curse in Genesis 3. But now the king comes and the curse is reversed. And God says not only that, but the, the wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. It was too cold on the mountains. The soil was too thin for anything to grow up there. But not now. The curse has been reversed. What would it be like to live in a world with no more plowing or sowing or reaping? If you're an Israelite who is an agricultural Israel at the time, you could not imagine it. What's being talked about here? What can we have hope in here? A world in which there is no hunger. There's no poverty. There's no injustice. There's no disease. There's no sickness. There's no death. You see, every other religion in the world says in some ways that the material world, the physical world will pass away. Then you'll head to whatever form of afterlife there is or there isn't, but it'll be gone the physical world but Christianity says that God so loved the world he so loved this earth that he became part of it at Christmas he was gritty he was born in a manger he came down and was made man physically tangibly flesh only the God of the Bible says God loves the world and so came into it He suffers. He dies. His body, his physical body is then raised in order to heal it and restore it. The promise of a new creation, the hope we can hold on to is a physical one. A place where we will eat and drink and play and laugh and work together. The king will come. The realm is going to expand. The curse is reversed. And finally, God is going to set things right Forever. Our hope is for eternity. He says, I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from a land I've given them, says the Lord your God. Imagine the people reading Amos. Israel was destroyed 40 years. After this prophecy was first given, it seems to say roughly around then. Imagine them reading this a few hundred years on. You're in the exile. Your cities are ruined. Your vineyards are destroyed. Your gardens are ravaged. And this promise is given to you. You'd be excited. It's an incredible promise. No more exile. No more wandering. No more strife. A permanent home. It's quite pertinent. as we think about what's going on right now over that side of the world. And for us, we live the other side of this. The hope we can have at Christmas is a certain and sure assurance. It's firm, it's permanent. We do not need to doubt our salvation if we put our trust in Jesus. It's secure. Our hope is a promised and firm hope forever. So friends, will we live with hope and joy this Christmas? We can only do so as we focus on our hopelessness and our hope. We need to see our hopelessness for what it is. We need to see our our need for what it is. We need to recognise this Christmas that we need the baby to come. It's not just a nice story we tell. And so we need to repent from our sin. Our sin, which is making ourselves God's, Turning in on ourselves just what the Israelites were doing here. Living just for themselves. Not recognising the creator who made the world. Not living in light of the the law he's given us about to flourish in the world. Not loving our neighbour as ourselves We need to repent from that and turn to God again. Maybe for the first time. We need to look on the baby born at Christmas and worship him and call him God. And look at him and remember that baby came to die. The baby came to take the judgments we deserve. And hopefully as we look at Jesus this Christmas, that will bring joy. It'll bring certainty. It'll bring hope. Because we know the end of the story. We know he did break into the world. He did bring light into darkness. He did bring hope. We need to reflect on our hopelessness this Christmas. Because that's why he came. If we don't reflect on our hopelessness we will have a joyless Christmas a methodical Christmas maybe a traditional Christmas maybe but it won't be a joyful Christmas because we've not recognized why he needed to come he came because without him we are hopeless So focus on our hopelessness and focus on hope the baby who came did die but then he rose again and he's going to come and restore the world. And now, right now, he's in us by his spirit changing us. He's helping us to love our neighbour. He's helping us to find injustice. He's helping us to love and delight in him. So will we be a people who now live lives full of certain hope, even when life is tough? It's a wonderful witness to be a people filled with hope. As we show the the assurance and certainty and trust in God. Even as we live amidst really difficult situations. We can still live with hope. Because we know God is at work in it now. And we know he will restore the world in the future. So will we live with joy and freedom even amidst that? There's a beautiful song. Which we're going to close with as I read it out. from Andrew Peterson. It sums it up beautifully. Listen to these words. I've been waiting for the sun to come blazing up out of the night like a bullet from a gun. Till every shadow is scattered, every dragon's on the run. Oh, I believe, I believe that the light is gonna come. And this is the dark. This is the dark before the dawn. This is the storm before the calm. This is the pain before the balm. This is the cold before the warm. These are the tears before the song. This is the dark. Sometimes all I see is this darkness. This is the dark before the dawn. And yet here comes the dawn. The dawn is coming, the sun always rises. Jesus has come, hope has come, and he's gonna come again to make this dark world right. So this Christmas, let's remember our hopelessness and let's look to the only one who can offer hope. Let me pray and then we're gonna sing. Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Even as we anticipate the celebration of your first coming this Christmas, we long for your second coming. Send your son back soon, we pray, to finish this work of repairing and raising up and rebuilding a new heaven and a new earth. Free from sin, free from death, free from sorrow and pain. Lord, rebuild our lives today more and more in the image of Jesus. Help us to remember our hopelessness. Help us to throw ourselves onto the only one who can offer us real and lasting hope. Amen. Let's stand and sing of our only hope in Jesus.